Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Moon Traveling. What's up, Aaron? What's up, Matthew? So uh, we got a pretty special show for people today. Yeah, I'm excited about it. Who, who do we got? What do we got? We have T.W. Walsh, a.k.a. Tim Walsh. Yeah, it was a great conversation. Um, I have met him a few times, hung out with him a few times, but didn't really know him. And so I got to know him a bit better during this conversation and hear his story and super interesting guy, super influential guy, um, super inspiring uh, conversation, I think. Yeah, i am always been a huge Pedro Lion fan, and then uh, I, being the nerd I am, followed him, and I, I love his solo career, and I love all the uh, production work he's doing too, so it was really great to talk with him, and uh, I, we cannot wait to share this interview with you guys. So, without further ado... Here we go. Here it is. <laughs> uh, Tim, thank you so much for joining us. Um, so uh, our guest today is Timothy William Walsh, also known as T.W. Walsh. He is an American songwriter, multi-instrumentalist, record producer, mixing engineer, mastering engineer, meditation teacher, mentor, poet, author, and painter from Boston, Massachusetts. You might know him from bands such as Pager the Lion, Headphones, Soft Drugs, or Low Tom. He has also provided musical mastering and production assistance for many other artists, including Sufon Stevens, Starfire 59, Jimmy Eat World, Ben Gibbard, Nathan Rakeliff, uh, Damien Gerardo, Cold War Kids, Clap Your Hands and Say Yeah, The Shins, Kirsten Hirsch, and many, many more. Did I miss anything? Well, that's pretty good. <laughs> Sweet. It sounds it sounds like a lot when you list it out like that. Sounds legit. You're like, Tim. <laughs> yeah, you, you sound legit now. You can use. You want me to send this to you for your website? Yeah, hey, I got to update my resume. Pretty sure you got that off Wikipedia, by the way. Cool. So, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thanks for uh, getting together. Yeah. Thanks yeah, for thanks joining for us. being here. So, yeah, you have quite a uh, resume. Um, I guess the, we'll we'll start at the beginning. How'd you get started in music? Yeah, let's see. I, I, I think um, it was basically my dad had a pretty good record collection. You know, he was born in 1950, so he was pretty well timed to get into the good music, you know, as it was happening in the late 60s and stuff. And uh, yeah, he just kind of had a, a collect, small collection of LPs and he was kind of passionate about music he's not really a musician himself but he he was super into rock and roll and uh you know he loved the stones and um getting into the 70s and 80s he he kind of stayed stayed in step with what was going on he got kind of into he was kind of into a lot of british music like he was into um elvis costello and the attractions ah, and nice. the police yeah. and zeppelin and um, also got into kind of um, a little bit of kind of almost post-punk music. There was a station here in Boston called WFNX that played kind of hip music. And so he got into 
like talking heads and <clears throat> some other interesting stuff that was happening in the cool. 80s and he just he just always kind of stayed stayed up to date with what was going on so um you know i just was listening to his records and and uh and uh being influenced by what what he was listening to and then when i was about 12 i i saw um the led zeppelin concert film the song remains the mm -hmm, same mm -hmm. and that kind of made me fall in love with drums and that's when i kind of started uh getting into playing drums oh that's so cool so i know you play lots of instruments would you say that drums is your your main like you're the one that you would put top on the resume i mean that that's the first one i learned so it kind of feels natural i think it's a good foundation uh as a musician to have um rhythm first rhythm is kind of the the primary element of music mm -hmm. um but you know it's tough to uh access your creativity as a drummer you're really kind of dependent on other people and uh so over time i i started picking up guitar i really kind of started writing songs and playing guitar when i was about 16 i'd say mm -hmm. that's cool. awesome and when when was the drums that was earlier like 12 something like that yeah, I started messing with drums at 12. I think I got a drum kit by the time I was 13. And then, you know, I was in bands right away, always playing original music. Cool. And uh, and my my bandmates would, like, leave. I was, you know, band practice is always at the drummer's house because it's hard to move <laughs> yeah. the drums, especially if you don't drive. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so they would leave their guitars around in their amps and I would mess with the mess with that stuff. And uh, that's yeah. kind of when I started getting into making making up songs and playing guitar a little bit, you know. That's awesome. That's cool. And and so then uh in ninety nine you, you so the first thing you did a lot of little bands, but then you your first like I guess professional thing was solo work, is that correct? Yeah, you know, I was really serious about playing drums and uh being in a band um and i was in two bands at the same time for a, for several years as a drummer but on the side i was writing and recording my own songs and um at a certain point you know people were responding a little bit more to the songs that i was writing than uh -huh. to the bands i was playing in even though i had kind of a weird singing voice there was kind of something that was ear catching or there was something to the composition in the arrangement that were, that was interesting to people. So I ended up, um, getting signed to a small label as a songwriter around 99 and then just tried to start figuring, figuring that out, trying to stay in those bands I was in and then kind of be assigned signed quote-unquote artist and stuff and um just feeling my way through it you know mm -hmm. yeah that was a made of made in mexico records is that uh how we spent our days yeah and the reason i i mean i had how i found made in mexico is i had just read a review um in this, this like uh amateur recording magazine called tape op of pedro the lions two records at that time it was um their I guess they had more than two at that time, but there was a there was like hard thing, yeah, hard to find a friend, and yeah. the only reason I feel secure, I think there was like one review that covered those two, and I bought those records, and I really liked them, and I and I thought that there was some kind of like um, 
sympathetic thing there. So I sent a, a demo CD to the label that put out that record, those records, which was made in Mexico and Seattle. And I started like a correspondence over email and phone with the guy who ran the label, um, James Morelos. And um, <laughs> y- yeah, if he, you must know James yeah, if you yeah. worked at Tooth and Nail and stuff. So yeah. um, I love James. So, uh, yeah, he's he's great. He quite a personality, yeah. and um, yeah, he he wanted to put out my record, so we did, we did that. It was a kind of an awkward fit, to be honest, but um, because like I was like this East Coast kind of um, East Coast like downer indie rocker, and the whole label was about like West Coast mm-hmm. and what was happening on the C- in Seattle post grunge and everything, and um, but it was. Um, I made a real good personal connection with a lot of people out there, including the guys who were in Pedro the Lion and, um, you know, Damien Gerardo, and we did some touring and, um, you know, some of my best friends to this day kind of came from that time in my life, you know? Yeah. It's pretty, pretty interesting um, how many people kind of came out of that era you know um and i can definitely see how you would have made some lifelong connections uh, during that so yeah cool it was cool it was it was pretty pretty eye-opening you know coming and hanging out um in seattle at the time it felt pretty different from where i grew up the people kind of had a different uh it was a different culture and kind of um more laid back, like less abrasive personalities on the West Coast, you know, and mm-hmm. um, and also I, you know, um, it was interesting to start to get a sense of the the, the culture around um, evangelical Christianity and mm-hmm. Christian rock um, that was new to me at that time. Like I kind of got involved with Pedro the Lion before I even knew that there was like a Christian angle to it. And right, I, I hadn't been exposed to any of the subcultures there and the, and the music scene and, and, and all of that. So, um, it was interesting. It was interesting to, to, to get immersed in that as some, as like an East coast, like uh, agnostic Catholic guy, you know? Yeah. That is that, such a trip to think about because, you know, I was in the th- middle of that whole thing, you know, f- um, from its inception or like early nineties, 91, 92 is when it really started. And, um, it kind of, a, a huge um, epicenter of that whole thing was the church that my dad was a pastor at that I grew up in it was okay. this church called Calvary Fellowship. It was a Calvary chapel in um, Wallingford at the time. And mm-hmm. uh, that whole, like so many things came out of that era. You know, my band, Poro Lou, um, this band, Soul Food, uh, 76, um, MXPX kind of, came through that David kind of came through that you know not directly from that church but there was a whole music scene that we started as kids where we were putting on shows and being in bands and um playing out and trying to kind of create our own culture um and coming into it when you did and kind of that would have been a trip I mean I have such fond and traumatic memories of that era. So it's like, <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, I, yeah, I would love to get inside your head and see what you were thinking when you walked into that <laughs> whole mess. <laughs> yeah, it was trippy, you know, like I was, a, you know, I met, met all those folks in, in 99, I think. And then I went on tour 
with Pedro the Lion in in the year 2000. Mm-hmm. And we were already get like I was already getting pretty close with all the people that I was with and the people from the whole scene and stuff. So <clears throat> I was already pretty invested in those relationships and yeah. So that was kind of the angle that I wrote it out from, you know, like throughout all of the kind of the weird shows or the weird festivals or the yeah. kind of <laughs> the confrontations with the fans who had problems with uh, Bazan's lyrics and <laughs> exactly, stuff, and, yeah, and all of the, all of that stuff. It was more like, you know, I was kind of just, um, I, I just had my friends back, um, and uh, mm-hmm. you know, we were all in it together, and I was yeah. kind of just taking taking it all in. You know? Yeah, yeah. So I want to so, know, Matthew. I'm sorry to I- interrupt you. I no, want to. I have a question. I want to know when. At what point did you start engineering, producing? You know, getting on the other kind of side of the wind, proverbial window from being in um, a band or performing or making your own music. Yeah. Um, well, my entry to all that would be definitely be in the analog world like i was born in in 75 so um and when i started playing music it was the late 80s basically and um you know computers were a thing but they weren't a thing to make music with you know yeah and 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 cassette was the dominant format so um right from the get-go you know, my bands were writing songs and recording them, but in a really primitive way, you know, on, on a, on like a boom box yeah. cassette or whatever. And boom boxes all, most of them came with like a built in microphone, you know? So it was like really straightforward to just record band practice or whatever. And then I also had uh, a friend whose older brother had a cassette four track actually. And then we kind of, tried to wrap our heads around how that worked, you know, (laughs) and we'd, we'd go down to Radio Shack and buy a, um, you know, a $3 microphone with a, with a cable and try to get it to record (laughs) into the cassette four track, you know, um, cause, um, you know, that's what we had and we figured out that we could kind of overdub. I'm not even sure we knew these terms or whatever. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, so we right off, right from the get go, probably when I was about fourteen, we started messing with four tracks and stuff. Um, and um, you know, as the drummer, like I said, a lot of the action happens at at your house, right. you know. So so um, we would kind of do do that stuff at my house, and um, and I you know I was always interested in. I come from like a blue collar background, and very like do it yourself like projects around the house mm-hmm. and stuff so it was always um kind of part of the culture that i grew up in like just kind of figuring out how to do things and so i kind of just dove into it and then on top of that like you know the late 80s pre-cell phones pre-internet you know like we wouldn't have known how to find or how to find a recording studio if right. like somebody put a gun to our head like how do you like how do you get into a recording studio oh yeah um, we would have had no idea so um and we wouldn't have had the money either so we just made it work and then from there you know i did eventually um end up you know my bands 
um, got serious enough to where we would go into, we went one time into an ADAT studio mm-hmm. to record and mix an EP in like four nice. hours or whatever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then we went and made um, another album on an, in an, at an analog A-track studio in Boston over an extended period of time when I was in college. And I started kind of like learning some more uh, advanced techniques from mm-hmm. from that guy. His name's Darren Burke. Um, and uh, and kind of taking a little bit more seriously. And then I would rent gear. I had I rented like an eight eight track reel to reel for an extended period of time. And then I I was the first person I knew to to buy a a CD burner. It was like an external CD burner that connected to my computer via this protocol called SCSI. SCSI. Yeah. And you know it was like probably you know, several months worth of income for me. It was like 500 bucks to buy the CD burner. And then you'd buy these packs of like five CDRs and it would cost like 50 bucks or something. The CDs themselves were like 10 bucks a piece. And then one out of every five would would burn error-free and would play in a CD player, right? So that's that's, that's so where crazy. I took it from there. We, 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 we graduated from mixing to cassette, to mixing into my computer through the sound card and burning CDs. And then I kind of took it from there and like got more into the digital world from there in the late nineties. Like yeah. as, as I was, you know, finishing up college and stuff. Did wow. you record your first album yourself? Yeah, I did. Uh, I recorded my first solo album that came out in 99 on a, on a series of different formats. Like some of it was cassette four track. Some of it was reel to reel. Um, like ha- uh, half inch, half inch reel mm-hmm. to reel yeah. eight track. It was like a TAC machine. Yep. And then um, some of it was on um, a Roland digital machine that recorded on zip disks. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, yeah, VS eight forty or something yeah, like that had like those built were in really effects. popular for a minute. Tons of people had those. Yeah. So nice. it was a, it was a multi formats, and then I mixed and mastered it directly into Cool Edit Pro in my on my Windows PC nice. through the Turtle Beach uh, sound, sound card. card. Yes, <laughs> I love this. We'll be right back. To the podcast so our stories are really similar like mm. really like you know i was born in 74 and you know i was using you know just what i had at first and um had a, some a, a little bit of exposure to a studio you know the first studio that poor lou ever recorded in was we found in the yellow pages and you know, we just called and booked a session and it happened to be with a guy named Jonathan Plum, who is now one of the co-owners of London Bridge Studio and is like one of my mentors. Like he like absolutely turned out to be a really cool person to connect with that day. But, um, you know, and then learning from watching, like when my band was recording with someone else, I would learn and watch. And then I rented a Tascam eight track half inch for a little bit to make a thing on, you know, like... Mm-hmm. There was a yeah. a lot of similarities, actually. That's really cool. Um, so, 
at what point, I'm going to go down this lane just for another minute. So at what point did you start working on other people's music, other people's projects as a, as an engineer or producer or mastering or all that stuff? Like when did that sort of evolve? Um, I think it was basically when I started, uh, when I got that CD burner, Mm-hmm. I was the first, I was the only person that in, in my kind of peer group that um, had any kind of access to that, that type of thing. Like up until that point, if you wanted to make a CD, I, you know, you had to like, you know, get on the train with your, with your dat tape or your cassette and go into Boston and like walk into kind of a, there was like a, tape duplication shop or something <laughs> yeah. in, in Boston. It was, it was across the street from Berkeley. And um, I think it was, what was it called? The tape complex or something like that. So you'd walk in, you, you wouldn't have an appointment or you just walk into the desk and you say like, I want to, I want to get some copies of this yeah. thing on CD. And, um, you know, you could like choose a graphic design package and work with a graphic designer mm. to come to make the <laughs> to make the <laughs> the cover. And, nice. But they but they had the technology to like make the, to duplicate the thing like yeah. either on cassette or CD. Yeah. But it was like it was expensive and it was like annoying and time consuming. But mostly it was it was expensive. Yeah. So like when when my friends found out that I could like burn CDs and and like make something that you could use as a master um and you wouldn't have to at least pay for the transfer, right. you know, to some other format to get it duplicated, right. replicated. Like what word got around and like so it was mostly like I was already in these two bands and these the guys in the bands that I that I was in already had like side projects and friends and stuff. So right, yeah. Yeah, at that point the just like my immediate friend group would start asking me to help with their projects, mm-hmm. you know, and um and you nice. know, it was all free free work and it was just like buddies helping buddies and right. stuff and um i did start it from there like i i would do some projects and tr- like trade s- trade for it like a guy in my town had a small guitar shop and he like traded me a guitar to do some transfers and mastering of his stuff and then from there eventually it went to like getting getting paid a little something here and there but it was always like a a passion project, you know. I never yeah. really got plugged into any kind of like industry machine, and I always had kind of like a still had that DIY punk rock kind of attitude mm-hmm. of like didn't you know not selling out or not getting involved <laughs> in anything that wasn't a hundred percent like ethical. So it was probably hurt me in the long yeah. run, but um, <laughs> I stuck to my guns, you know. Yeah, it's funny because. Um our shop in in Seattle was called Pro Tape Northwest, and it sounds like it was exactly yeah. the same thing. Um, yeah. And uh, people just don't understand what a big deal it was to be able to burn a CD at some point in history. Yeah. Like that was like the ultimate, you know, end game for a, a independent band to be able to get a CD of their music in their hands. And that was, yeah, it was yeah. Uh, largely unattainable by most people. So, I mean, that. It was, a, it was, a, it was a tall order. I mean, there were a lot of obstacles, right? You had to like, you had to like work at Dunkin' Donuts 
for six months to make enough money to buy the device. Yeah. Then you had to like know how to set it up and know how to troubleshoot it because it, like I said, it didn't work. It didn't work 75% of the oh, time. Oh, yeah. I remember know, so. how unstable they were. And, you know, you had to have a machine with a SCSI card in it. You had to, There's a lot of yeah. lot of <laughs> obstacles <Yeah>. there. <laughs> right. It was so, so unreliable for so long. Uh, that so I was awesome. the guy... I was... I was the guy who had, had was like studying mechanical engineering and and um, computer science at school. So I was the guy who was like willing to like kind of fuck with all this. You're stuff. You're nerdy know? enough to right. yeah. take the challenge, <laughs> right? Yeah. So were you going to school while you were touring and and promoting these first couple albums, or or were you uh, did you quit school to go to to pursue music, or uh, well, I. You know, in school, there were a couple periods where I was, like, over it. Um, I went to a five-year school because we, we had a program where we would work um, part of the year in our industry, in the industry that we were kind of studying disciplines in. Mm-hmm. So I I got, a, like, a bachelor's degree in a five-year program. So I was in school from 93 to 98. And so a lot of the music that... I re- okay. that I released on on my record in 99 was recorded like between 96 and 98 or something like While that. While you were finishing okay. school. Yeah, yeah. So that then yeah, so then I graduated in 98 and then I I started working right away and at the same time in about 99 I had a full-time job, I was getting married and at that time you know made in mexico wanted to put out my record and was just weird because like i had been playing in drum i had been playing drums in bands for like you know i was 24 years old or whatever i've been playing drums in bands for like 12 years and almost nothing had happened like i was in some good bands but like somebody in the in the group would always like sabotage any opportunity (laughs) that like came up you know what i mean just like drink too much or say the wrong thing or yeah Yeah. so yeah um it was weird because i like i finally graduated college and i was getting married and i had a like a decent job and i was and then i had this my foot in this other world of like indie rock but also i was a really um I really lacked confidence as a singer and as a performer because, like, all of my performance had always been, you know, as a drummer in the back hiding Mm -hmm. behind a drum set. And then trying to be a singer, trying to figure out how to hear my voice, Mm -hmm. like, in, 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 um, in, in PAs and monitors in, you know, in the 90s, like, the, the, the gear in clubs, that was already 30 years old. You know what I mean? (laughs) Right. Uh, Right. So, um, it was like really a bad scene for monitoring. Now we have like in ears and stuff. Like yeah. I just got my first in ears this year. Like I, like I, an in ear set up for 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 singing and performing. Um, so I it, have reoccurring nightmares about what you're talking about right now. Like I, about I'm sure being, that you can picture picture everything that I'm talking. Like about, being you know? able to hear hearing like weird frequencies bouncing off of the wall that sound like oh, the wrong yeah. note in the song, and you can't find where. Uh, I mean, it yeah. just I've had the worst. <laughs> I was super shy. I, I mean, yeah. still am as a, as a singer live. You know, I was just the guitar player in my first band. You know, but so. 
That's yeah, that's cool. That's really interesting. Um, yeah, when, whenever I play, I, I'm they're always surprised because I just have the punk rock mentality. I've just always had just shitty monitors, so I'm just like that'll that'll do. That's good enough. Right. And they're like, <laughs> and everyone else is like taking forty minutes, and I'm like, I don't know. I played enough clubs. I know. I, I it's not what I I know what I'm supposed to do. You guys take care of the rest. Close your you know, eyes. Like, well, hope for the best. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean the, the the problem is like that. You know, like I'm a tenor singer, and that's the same range as the as electric guitar, right. and the same same range yeah. as cymbals. And your head <laughs> your head is at cymbal level. You know yep. what I mean? Yep. Right in front of the drummer. Yeah. And 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 the the your voice is coming from the floor, like yeah. in this honky sounding, um, you know, cardboard box, and it. I just couldn't wrap my head around it. You know, like um and. Uh, it really was it was difficult like i was i had i was fortunate enough to go out and and tour you know do several tours um as a singer songwriter but i was concentrating so much on keeping it together that um you know even when i was singing well it was like the performance was like really wooden because it was it wasn't a natural place mm, for me to yeah. be you know yeah. yeah. So does that ex- does that explain how you moved from from doing uh, you know working on your solo stuff and and then moving and trans transferring that into being a part of Pedro Lying and being a part of someone else's project? Uh, I know you came back to doing solo work, but for a while there, you you were just part of uh, I guess David's thing, right? Yeah. I mean, I would say there were a few different reasons that I kind of got involved to that degree. Um, one of it was because we had a really close personal connection you know like we were just friends we enjoyed working together and we respected each other i really liked the songs like i was into the music you know what i mean and um he needed help like there was kind of always people coming and going in that in that group Mm -hmm. in that project and um and um there was an you know like it seemed like if i was in seattle i would be able to get involved at that time also this is like around 2002 um when i moved out there or two 2002 or 2003 but um i already had two children too oh so wow, yeah it was an opportunity to work with you know one of my closest friends on music i really liked and possibly eke out a living mm-hmm. doing that mm-hmm. you know what i mean so it was like all those factors so at that time i was like i was more than willing to like um throw my effort and energy behind this project that i believed in that already had some momentum at that yeah, time and yeah. i had i had been involved already since before winners never quit i was when i started playing live with them and i would take an i took like a couple leaves of absence from work to go out on the road and mm-hmm. do tours and stuff with him. And then I contributed material to winners never quit and control. And, um, and then, and played like on the tours in support mm-hmm. of those records. And then, um, at, at that point I moved, I had lost my job in 2001. I've told this story a lot of times, but maybe you guys haven't heard it, but in 2001 in June, my son was born and then my first son and then um in september september 11th happened mm-hmm. while and then um at the, when that happened i was in the middle of buying my first house and then i was 
laid off from my job right after that. Oh my god! So I had a new baby, and I just bought a house, and oh I got laid god. off. Wow! And so at that point, um, for for a period of time, um, I tried. We lived off a little savings, and I kind of ran a studio in Boston for a little while. I partnered up with Darren, who who kind of had helped me learn mm-hmm, engineer mm-hmm. in the beginning. I made a bunch of records, like you know, kind of on a shoestring budget with different mm-hmm. bands. And at a certain point I was like, I either have to like go find another like software engineering job or I could go out to Seattle and see what the hell happens. And then it actually turned out to be um, Silverdale, which is like near Bremerton mm-hmm. and like kind of, kind of between Bainbridge Island and, and, and Bremerton, not far from Paul's boat. Mm-hmm. And that's where we lived while, while I was um, kind of doing a lot of the work on, that Pedro record, Achilles Heel, and yeah. then all the touring and stuff we did. Crazy, yeah. Da- I think David ended up out that way, didn't he, for a while? I feel like he did. Well, that's that's why I lived out there on the peninsula oh. was because Dave was living in Paul's boat. At right, that time. that's right. That was that crazy place that he lived at. Yeah, yeah. It was a property that a former drummer of Pedro the Lion, Ben Brubaker, yep. lived. Yep. lived Ben's owned, place. Yeah, owned this farm property out there. Yep. Yeah, yeah. I remember. I never went out there, but I've seen pictures of it. Um, so you contributed uh, songs to Winners Never Quit and Control, but you were no, not part of any of the recording of, of that at all. You didn't actually, and you were playing live, but you didn't actually start recording with him and stuff until Achilles Heel. Like, yeah, like on Winners Never Quit, I, I contributed a couple small things. I think they were like drum parts that I didn't end up playing because I was living in Boston and he was like, you mm-hmm. know, like um, I had kids in a job and I. I just mm-hmm. I wasn't going to be out in Seattle. And Dave did most of that, you know, always did a lot of the arrangement and recording himself. And then my main contribution was to control was just like the intro riff to options. Um, mm. was something I wrote that Dave like built the song around. Cool. And, um, but that's the nice. main thing that I kind of did on on control. But I didn't play on that again. That was just I think that was just Dave and Casey Faubert played on that. Okay. Yeah, Case Casey and Dave and I. I came in on that record after the drums and did everything else with David and Casey. Um, and I don't even really remember Casey even playing on it. I think he might have played a couple little keyboard parts, but David really did yeah. everything on that record. Yeah, mm-hmm. I might be wrong, but I was in a haze. We were we made we were staying up literally sometimes for twenty four hours working on that record. So, and you mixed that too. Is that right? Yes, I mixed it um, okay. and engineered everything after the drum. He did the drums in his okay. practice space uh, in, I think it was in Ballard or something like that. And then he called me kind of in a panic, like, I need to turn this record in and I'm in over my head. And um, I had just started working out of this studio in Magnolia that was owned by Brandon Ebel. It was in the basement of the Tooth and Nail um, office building. Um, okay. I think it was Martin Fevier's old place, actually. Um, I believe it was his space because it was built out a bit, but it was one of the first things I did down there. Um, was we? Just, I worked in a, in his second stu- his his studio after that was like was I think in Wallingford. Yeah, uh, it was a cool spot. Yeah, um, the uh, Jupiter. Nice. Yeah, Jupiter. yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's where Crow nice. used to be. That was that was kind of a, a historic room there too. Yeah, Jupiter was dope. Um but yeah, that it, I it's a blur making that record is a total blur to me. Um 
yeah, I mean, it was always a scramble. There was, all, you know, it was always a scramble to finish whatever we were trying yeah. to do back then. Yeah. You know? So you did Achilles with them, and then that came out, and then, uh, then I guess pretty much the band disbanded. And from what I understand, it's because you were the only other member, and you had left, right? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of different ways to kind of characterize what Pedro the Lion was and is, and and what my yeah. role was, <laughs> and what you know there was, you know there was there was tw- there was at least twenty people involved in the band or, or during that first yeah. first run, you know, and um, so you know it was always changing. Like I, I actually played, you know, as a multi instrumentalist. Um, like D- Dave and I were both multi instrumentalists, and actually several of our friends. Um, and people who had been involved were really capable on multiple instruments, like Casey Faubert and and um, and others. But um, yeah, we were always kind of like trying different configurations, and like every tour, basically, almost every major tour that we did when I was playing with the band, I played a different instrument on, mm-hmm. on you know. So I was I was nice. always learning. You know, the, 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 these 25 songs on different instruments and we weren't, you know, there was never a rehearsal or anything like that. I would just be like, okay, yeah. we got to go play South by Southwest. Like you're going to play drums and you're going to play, play guitar. And we just get on the plane and show up and we would do, we would even do when we were on tour, we would have to do in stores. That was a thing back then, mm-hmm. you know? And so like we would show up at um, an in store and just kind of like, flip a coin to see who was going to play what instrument because we were kind of bo- <laughs> bored and trying to keep it interesting so we would there were there were def- there were times where dave would sing and play drums and i would play guitar and and i sometimes i would play bass and stuff so it was i love it it's so dave yeah yeah so, <laughs> so it was cool. always it was always changing He's you know a tinkerer for sure but um, yeah yeah and when and when you uh quit then you moved back to boston and then started the soft drugs is that, is that what i'm understanding or or like what happened after you 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 quit uh pedro lion yeah so towards the end there like we tried some different things like dave was always interested in synthesizers and so he uh, there, there was always like this i think he was trying to figure out whether pedro the lion was going to become a synthesizer band or we were going to have this another project that was like synthesizer based so we did we ultimately we did another record with headphones, this project right? called headphones yeah, yeah. yeah. I remember that. that's um, great good um and so that was like a, a synthesizer thing and we did some touring with that but that wasn't really working from like a business perspective mm-hmm. and i had two kids mm-hmm. at home and stuff so that was kind of the beginning of the end where i was like i listen i gotta bow out of this like we're losing money on the road and um yeah and and it was always a little bit shambolic like the things that were happening and the momentum was waning and um, there were a lot of other things happening, like you can imagine we're we're all having kids and like um, you know like e- economic challenges, and um, it was just a stressful time. So at a certain point, um, towards the end there, um, and and so I kind of started the soft drugs during that time with headphones because the idea was like maybe if we di- like uh, maybe if we diversify, mm-hmm. we can like scratch all our itches. Um, artistically and then also like have multiple income streams multiple things going on so I think that was one of the mm-hmm. ideas like I started the soft drugs in Washington at the same time that we did um, headphones so it was like okay we're gonna have these three projects like Pedro and the 
headphones okay. and the soft drugs. Mm-hmm. But but it wasn't it, ultimately it wasn't working for a number of reasons, and so I got a job as a as a software developer again in um, in Seattle. Like we moved to the um, to the mainland or whatever. You know, like I, we moved to like Edmonds and then Shoreline out mm-hmm, there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I got a job, and then it was. You know, from there, it became apparent that it would just be easier to raise the kids and, like, build a life again back in Boston. Yeah. So that's when I, I moved back to Boston with my family, where my parents are, my wife's parents yeah. are, um, in late 2006, early 2007. I kind of kept the soft drugs going when I got here, but at that time, like, music was really taking a backseat just to, like, real-life reality yeah. of, like, making a living and, yeah. and everything, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that makes sense. We will be right back. And now back to the podcast. And so, um, how did how did you get into the meditation and the coaching and and, and all the other stuff, stuff you do, the artwork and the the writing, um, you know, author authoring and such? Uh, that seems like such a. If I remember correctly, I feel like I remember you making a post where it seems like posts that both Aaron and I have made ourselves were like, uh, "F the music industry, I hate it, I quit, I'm doing something else." And then you kind of uh, took a left turn and started doing this stuff. And now it seems like you've encompassed it all. But like, how did you get into that? How did you move to that kind of like, um, where did that come in? Yeah. Well, I don't remember. I don't remember necessarily making public declarations like that, but I probably <laughs> did at some point because, uh, you know, like um, we've, I think, you know, the the music industry kind of like, choose a lot of people up and spits them out you know and and there's also a lot of like just darkness um you know musicians and songwriters and and artists in general i think there's there's a there's a real sensitivity and a vulnerability there that can manifest in a lot of ways so like you know it's it's kind of a culture and a way of life that that almost encourages substance abuse and then and kind of like um navel gazing and rumination like writing writing songs about your trauma and dredging romanticizing up, you know? self-destructive behavior right yeah I mean, just I suffering think. romanticizing mm-hmm. suffering yeah. right so like that yeah. in com- that in combination with like the kind of culture of of drinking and drugs mm-hmm. and then like just it being harder to make a living over time it was like yeah, there's definitely a period where it was like, you know, I've given so much to this thing and it's kind of like taken some of my best years from me. That was like a feeling that I yeah. did have for a while. You know what I mean? Yeah, sure. I don't yeah. know if, um, yeah. Um, and so, um, you know, I've had these d- different ups and downs of being productive in music and um, and being inspired. The The... Um, and like in those, in those kind of valleys of inspiration, of lack of inspiration, you know, like, um, uh, 
you know, I've always been interested in a lot of different things. Like I'm interested in technology. I've worked in technology, like the tech, the, the technological side of the technical side of music, obviously mm-hmm. with the audio engineering and stuff, but I've always been really creative at, at heart. So, um, you know, I've done a lot of different type of, uh, of work in different media, um, some visual art and like you mentioned, some, um, some writing, like I wrote and published a book earlier this year. Um, but it's on the topic of meditation and spirituality mm-hmm. and, and, and how I got into that was I had a serious health problem back in 2013. Mm-hmm. I just developed like a really weird, like a nervous system disorder that oh, was, wow. it went undiagnosed at that time. And it, and, but it, it, it kind of like, uh, took me out for like about two years. Whoa. I was like pretty seriously ill. Uh, and, um, as part of my recovery from that, I got into meditation. Uh-huh. I like just fo- followed up on my interest in, 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 in that topic from when I was younger. And, um, I just got pretty deeply into it as part of like my recovery from this illness. Mm-hmm. And, um, over time it, it, it really, uh, had a huge impact on my life. And, um, one of the fruitions of that was this book that I wrote and um, released earlier this year. That is so cool. Nice. What's the book called? Uh, it's called Coherence. And so it's um, it's 49 poems. So it, the way it's structured is there's seven sections or chapters. Each chapter has seven poems. And every poem has seven stanzas, and every stanza has seven lines. So it's very... Oh, wow. It's very structured. Wow. And um, each chapter is like a different different theme or set of teachings or meditation instructions. And it's kind of like all based on, um, you know, a a cycle of Buddhist teachings and meditation Mm -hmm, practices. mm That sounds so so cool. I cannot wait to get it. Where can we get that book? Is it on Amazon or... Yeah, it's on Amazon. If you just search T.W. Walsh or Coherence, um, cool. yeah, it'll come up. Awesome. And so you describe it as Dharma or Buddha Dharma for people like me that don't know what that is. What, what is that? So, yeah, um, you know, Buddhism is, is um, you know, an Eastern. I think most people are familiar with like Buddhism in, in general, but mm-hmm. the, te- the teachings of Buddhism and Hinduism like um, and uh, kind of the the teachings of truth in general in the in the east are referred to as dharma and that's originally i think a sanskrit okay. word and so it means truth or teachings or reality mm-hmm. like there's a few different interpretations of that so so you know in in buddhism in particular um those teachings are what you study in practice the, the practices and studying of reality and of mind mm-hmm. are, are often referred to as the dharma Cool. Awesome. Yeah. I definitely want to check that out too. And, and so you're doing like, you're also meditate, uh, doing coaching and mentoring for people as well. It seems like in anything that, that from meditation to, to, uh, Buddhism to, uh, creativity and such as well. Right. Yeah. The, the way that I learned, um, about meditation and, um, spirituality and kind of made, did a lot of self-development was, um, through a series of like one-on-one, um, personal mentorships, you know, oh, working yeah. with 
individuals who are co- coaches yeah, or mentors o- over an extended period of time. So it's more of these one-on-one relationships as opposed to like group, a group setting. And, and so that's kind of the model that I'm using to work with people um, on meditation. And um, we also, I, I work with a lot of people on um, themes around creativity and kind of the technical aspects of music in particular, but a lot of these concepts can be kind of applied to a lot of different disciplines, like creative disciplines. That's, that's incredible. Um, yeah, I really love the stuff that you've been posting. I shared some of it on our, our page with, with some of our uh, followers about, uh, how to write songs. We had a episode that we did last about songwriting, but also, you know, just about creativity in general. And I, I really love your insight and stuff. Oh, thanks a lot. I, I realized at a certain point that I did have a kind of a unique take on it or I, the way that I think about these processes is, you know, could be useful to other people, you know? Yeah, but, I love the idea of the connection between all of these disciplines, you know, creativity and meditation and um, sort of looking at it from a looking at creativity and music and stuff from a different angle than what we were just talking about that's generally sort of looked at in the music industry, um, the, the darkness, um, but looking right, yeah. at it from a, a, from a different angle and looking at how those pathways are all connected and what kind of rich experiences can be unearthed from connecting them and being more aware of those connections. Um, because uh, for me, the older I get, the why of what I'm doing c- comes to the surface more than anything else. You know, why, why are, why am I doing this? You know, right. um, yeah. and all the different pathways you can get to just having a better understanding of that, of why, um, are really fascinating to me. I, I. I'm sure I'm nowhere near as educated on the subject as you are, but I, it, um, especially ever since I left the Christian faith a few years ago, you know, my interest in um, Buddhism and meditation and um, just sort of other practices of um, what I call spirituality, which doesn't have to be anything supernatural, but it, it is spirituality, um, have been really interesting to me, and I've started down that path too so i think i think some of the things that we share that are similar are pretty interesting uh as far as our stories go um and really it's been really exciting to hear i i wish we're kind of running out of time and we have some questions for you for from some of our listeners so we want to get to those i would I mean, I feel like yeah, we could sure. do an entire podcast on just your recovery <laughs> from your illness. You know, I feel like we could do an entire podcast on a lot of these things. So, um, yeah, I just can't definitely. tell you how much I appreciate your time. And um, it's been so great just getting to know you better and hearing uh, your story, a, a little bit of it at least. Yeah, I've enjoyed it. Thanks. It's cool to talk with people who have kind of a, a, a lot of common ground and know some of the same, have some of the same points of reference and... Um, you know, share some of these experiences. And yeah, when it comes to, to, to creativity, I think there's a lot to be explored there because, um, you know, when you're not deliberate about where, uh, about your intention, when you're making stuff, what comes out is, you know, the, 
what comes out of the unconscious and is dominant in the unconscious when we don't um, hmm. have an intention there is just our trauma and our mm-hmm. and our shadow mm-hmm. and the things that we're not, you know, consciously. Um, uh, the things that we're not conscious of are are almost always are are coming out as um, manifestations of our darkness and our mm. trauma. So, like, oh. that's something that I've worked a lot at mm. is trying to create um, out of a, a place of receptivity and spaciousness and, um, if not positivity, um, you know, a, a place of, like, of potential positivity, mm-hmm. you know. That's but I'm happy. I'm, I'm happy that. to answer, this, you know, some of these questions that came up. Sure. Yeah. Uh, Before we get to him, I just wanted to say that, like, it seems like after your your diagnosis and then going through this meditation and and kind of finding, you know, uh, self-awareness and happiness and such, it seems like your music career then had a blooming. I mean, you you did two more uh, solo albums, which, in my opinion, Fruitless Research is perfect album. And I think it's amazing. Thanks. And then you did the low Tom mm. stuff and you've been doing the stuff with Starflyer. Like the Starflyer's newest record vanity is the best thing they've put out. And I, I want to say last 15 years or something like that. I mean, really, I feel like you're in this new realm and I, I, I can see that, that you're, what you're doing is, is working. You know, I can see this beautiful happiness through what you're, what you're putting out there. Mm. That's awesome. Thanks a lot. Yeah. I'm glad it, it comes, it, it comes across. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we just got. Uh, we, I ask usually before we have someone coming on, and you saw it and shared it. Um, ask some people if they have any questions, and I've got two people sent in questions. So uh, one guy sent three, and the other one sent one. So here we go. Uh, okay. Noah, who I don't have a last name for, sent uh, three questions through email, and he said, uh, first he says, you have said that you have worked with a few people who you believe are geniuses, one of them being Yuki Matthews, uh, which I had to look up who that is, but he's in the shins. Um, who are the others? Yeah, so Yuki um, co-produced or actually probably technically produced Fruitless Research. So like, um, Oh, nice. That That's my experience with him was... was uh, working with him was profound. He just has a really unique way of looking at making music. Um, I don't I would know say, him very well, but I love Yuki. I've spent a little bit of time with him back in the day with Blake Westcott and David and some other people. So, yeah. Yeah, I, I figured that um, figured that you knew him. Um, you know, another um, guy who, would I, who, I, who I would put in that category would be Casey Faubert, yeah. who is another multi-instrumentalist who has an incredible facility and just fluidity with, um, with music and, um, and the technical side too, a great engineer. Um, but he, he, um, I wish that he has, I wish that he had released more music and he recently did release an EP of his, um, of his songs. So, and that's on Bandcamp and, and his voice is beautiful. He's writing great lyrics. Um, so he's, he's, uh, I would call him a genius. Fobert's um, a beast. I love that. Yeah. Dude. And then, um, Richard Swift is probably mm. another person who I would put in that category yeah. who was really kind of, um, a savant and probably the most original of the bunch. Although he worked in some idioms that were really kind of 
strict, especially early on. Very specific, yeah. (laughs) Very specific. Yeah. Like, over time, as he let his originality kind of come more and more to the forefront, um, he he was really um, a special person. Mm. He was in Starflyer when I produced Old, and that was my introduction to him. So that was a really great time that I cherish to be able to get to spend with him and work with him. Yeah. That was probably the, when I met you, Aaron, I Mm -hmm. think was probably when we've visited Starflyer recording at at the compound and, and yeah, Swift was there. I think I had already met and and knew all those guys at that point, Mm -hmm. but it was, um, I think that that's probably when I first met some skipjack happened. Yeah, yeah. For, for sure. <laughs> there was a lot of money changed hands yes. that night. <laughs> this went around in a circle. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, the next question is, uh, I'm curious about the meaning of if it's once I got it, if it's twice I don't from the song Start Without Me. Um, yeah, you know, like I, I have a kind of a, a stream of consciousness um style to lyric writing and it's pretty abstract so i'm sure that when i wrote that i didn't know what it meant and then (laughs) yes um i probably figured it out over time but i i you know i probably wouldn't go into more detail because it goes to show that like that's one of the lyrics that I've gotten the most questions about in my entire career, you know? And so I think that it just goes to show if you write kind of obtuse or, you know, abstract lyrics, people connect with it and they really engage with it and, and um, make it their own, give it their own meaning. So I'd I'd rather let that process happen. Uh, naturally. That's my favorite answer ever. But yeah, I mean, I completely agree. I think that, it's just like going to an art museum. I don't have the artist there telling me what the art means and I can still think it's beautiful and get something from it. And I think that that's even more powerful than if the artist was sitting there talking to me. Sometimes it ruins it when you find out what yes. a lyric yeah. meaning was. Cause you're like, Oh, that meant something different to me. Yeah. So sometimes I don't yeah, want to know. <laughs> yeah. I can spoil it for sure. Yeah. <laughs> sometimes going to karaoke places and then I read the actual lyrics rather than what I thought the lyrics were <laughs> r- ruins the song. Hundred <laughs> uh, percent. And uh, Noah's last question was also: I wonder what uh, you think about Bazan changing. Is it Bazan or Bazan? It's Bazan, right? Bazan, yeah. yeah, yeah. Bazan changing lyrics from "I trust T. William Walsh" to "I can finally trust myself." Well, I think that's appropriate. I mean, I think that that you know we all want to get to that point where we have um, have faith in our own ability to navigate yeah. life, right? Mm. And, um, yeah. I mean, I think that that lyric originally was kind of a throwaway jokey kind of line, <laughs> yeah. you know, which we all got a chuckle out of. Um, and you know, it kind of on some level became the headline of my music career and it, it didn't huh. feel appropriate. It didn't feel appropriate or, or, um, it, it didn't feel appropriate at all because it wasn't intended that way to be something you know, like yeah. it was like an inside joke. Kind yeah, of it wasn't and, this um, epic proclamation or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so I'm glad that I'm glad that he reclaimed that and that it's um it's kind of evolved over time. That's cool. Yeah, I think it's pretty beautiful. And now uh, you, you're selling a shirt that says uh, "Trust T.W. Walsh," right? <laughs> yeah. So I've I've kind of like had yeah. I think that what I wanted to do was to recognize that history without and like kind of reclaim it for myself. That's too, awesome. You know what I mean, that's yeah. awesome. I mean, 
I think we all can wish that we had a song with our name in it. I mean, that's pretty cool. Um, and the, the last one is from Evan1138 from Instagram. And his is, uh, this is a deep one. Uh, do you prefer Star Wars or Star Trek? Oh, man. I, you know, I, I don't think that you should have to choose. Mm-mm. Amen. But, but um, you know, I, I would say that um, as a child of the 70s, like Star Wars was, was pretty meaningful um, in my life. And then, you know, the original, I, I'm giving you like, I know it's a joke question, but I'm giving you, I'm going to try to give you a serious <laughs> answer. You know, like the original Star Trek had kind of like a, um, a kitschy like vibe to it. And then in the nineties, um, you know, the next generation yeah. came along, you know, the early nineties and yeah. that was, there was, that was really special. Was so epic. I would say it's like, so it was good. epic and that was peak yeah. Star Trek for me, for sure. I really did like the next generation. Oh, it is the best iteration yeah. to me as yeah. well. And I think that's a terrible question because I love them both so much. <laughs> I think, in yeah, I'm, I'm in, I'm in the both camp as yeah. well. Yeah. I, th- I think all three of us are. And, and actually to nerd out, I got me a, uh, oh nice thing here <laughs> i also i also have a signed wharf picture next to me um, wow okay you're coming across as more of a trekkie than you, yeah than you said. well t- these were these were gifted Nerd to alert. me we're actually we're actually gonna sell them soon because we got no place to put them but um but also been nerding out today because star wars celebration started today and they just released the ahsoka trailer and they announced three new movies and all that kind of stuff yeah, and i'm just I'm like stoked. so nerding out yeah oh cool i think the new stuff has been pretty cool it's been a little bit hit or miss but i but um but i like i like a lot of the yeah me too stuff. i love it yeah well um thank you so much for joining us uh, i really appreciate you taking your time to be with us today uh, if you wanted to tell people uh the favorite i don't know you, you have any favorite things that you've worked on or and also tell people how they can find you and all those kind of things uh kind of give it over to you here at the end to to share with people yeah, definitely. You know, like I'm, I'm kind of a jack of all trades. I'm interested in doing a lot of different things. If you have a weird project in mind that you think um, I might uh, be able to contribute in some way to, just reach out to me at, at my website, twwalsh.com. Um, I'm still doing mastering. Um, I kind of took a break, but I'm, I'm back at it. Um, the, the book came out in January. Um, I think if you like my lyrics or you like uh you want to learn to meditate the book um is pretty accessible but it gets into some advanced stuff later on but it kind of takes you along for the ride you know Um, so yeah just go to my website to see what i'm up to and you can i'm easy to reach via email there and uh you know i'm on social media and stuff too so i'm easy to find cool cool yeah thanks so much we'll be attaching all this stuff to our websites yeah appreciate it appreciate It it was yeah, it was great to reconnect with you, Aaron, and, and great to meet you, Matthew. Awesome. Yeah, likewise. Likewise. Thanks. I appreciate you taking time. Day. Yeah, you too. And Aaron, Jason Martin says hi. I talked to him earlier today. Oh, and nice. He, he said to say hi. <laughs> oh, <laughs> nice. sweet. Yeah, I got to reach cool. out to him. It's been, a, it's, I haven't seen him since the Low Tom show in Ballard. I was at that show, actually. Oh, cool. Yeah. Right on, right on. Yeah. Awesome. Take care, brother. All right. You too. Thanks a lot. Yep. All right. Bye. 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 All right. Well, that was it. Uh, we want to again thank TW or Tim for coming on the show, um, for taking his time to talk with us. Uh, we hope you enjoyed everything you heard. If you have any further questions, you can uh, send them to us either on our email, which is moontravelingpodcast at gmail.com, 
or uh, on our Facebook or Instagram, which are Moon Traveling Podcast. Uh, make sure to check out Tim's newest singles. Uh, his newest single is called Kaboom. He also did a collab with Chris Staples called Out of My Body. And the newest release he did was uh, the Jimmy World remix, Place Your Debts, the yeah, T.W. Walsh cool. remix. Yeah, so make sure you check all that out. He also mentioned his book, Coherence. Check that out. He also has art and other merch on his website. So make sure to take some time to go do that. Um, if you have not done this, make sure that you go and sign up uh, on all of our social media. So make sure you're following everything we do. And you want to take it a step further, we have a Patreon where you can get stickers, tees, discount on merch. Uh, you get episodes early and other exclusive content. And um, we also do quarterly hangs. Did I miss anything? No. Uh, just that it's worth it. <laughs> and how can they find you, Aaron? Um, just Google me, bitches. <laughs> it's uh, I believe it's Aaron Sprinkle Music most places, and then if it's not, it's just Aaron Sprinkle. Is that yeah, correct? Yeah, AaronSprinkleMusic.com, and uh, my Instagram is Aaron Sprinkle. And you can find me under Pacifico Rock, one word, or pacifimat p-a-c-i-f-i-m-a-t-t uh record label is pacifa records all that kind of stuff you search it you'll find it um thank you to everyone that sent in questions if you have any further questions feel free to send them our way and um we are going to be posting some questions that were sent to us that we could not include in the episode on a special post just for our patreons so thanks again for having us is that good you want to say bye yeah, sorry, I was just thinking about something else. Um, yeah, thanks everybody. We will see you next time. Very soon. Very soon.